I actually have a controversial way I could start this. Let's hear it. Not the whole thing, just like a teaser, just so I know how controversial. Nazis influenced a scene in this movie. Literal Nazis. I feel like we don't open with that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Welcome to that Star Wars podcast. My name is Brandon. I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Chris. And uh, we're here to talk about Star Wars Episode 4. A New Hope, or as it was known when it very first released, Star Wars. Chris, how the hell are you tonight? I am feeling good, feeling strong, feeling lubricated. (laughs) Uh, So if you haven't watched A New Hope, number one, like what rock do you live under that you haven't watched A New Hope? I've actually got a coworker who hasn't watched any of the Star Warses and it blew my mind. I found that out like two or three days ago. But if you haven't watched A New Hope before listening to this podcast, sit your ass down and watch A New Hope and then come back. All right. It's on Disney Plus. They're still offering the deal where you get a free year to Disney Plus if you switch over to Verizon Fios. Whatever your current internet is, <laughs> to hell with it. Get Fios for a year free at Disney Plus. Uh, I, we, we don't even, we're not even getting paid by Disney and here we are chilling, chilling Disney. But hey, Fios? Disney, Wait, are you secretly if you randomly paid stumble across Verizon? this? Yeah, if Disney, ran, if you randomly stumble across this and you want to sponsor us, my soul is for sale in this instance. <laughs> I, I, I will plug Disney Plus constantly. I'll, I'll plug anything, Disney. If you want to pay me, I will plug it disney that's just they've already got a star wars podcast like an official one though so yeah well we'll we'll supplant them but uh but we can say fuck so i don't think they can do that on theirs Uh, i don't think the mouse is happy with that one one thing that i just kind of wanted to start with is a new hope is a good like a damn good movie outside of being star wars it is just a good movie yeah i watched a new hope uh, i think like three times over the course of the past two weeks to get ready for this and then i also watched uh there's a documentary on disney plus called uh empire of dreams which is about just the making of the uh original trilogy and it's a real interesting watch i'd say about the first half of it is all just a new hope and uh, that, that was kind of what i did to prep for this chris how did you how did you prep for this episode today so I went in and I rewatched A New Hope and then I started looking at some of like the film inspirations when I watched some of those movies like I watched Flash Gordon, I watched Hidden Fortress and I looked up some other like little clips that were supposed to have like helped influence what Star Wars was, looked up some sounds actually and sort of seeing how they were used in being made. So I just kind of I went tried to take it from a different perspective because I knew that you would watch the movie a lot and look at it from that perspective so I wanted to have some other side perspectives to come from right right um so gosh i don't know i don't know exactly how we want to start this on your first rewatch what was your favorite scene and was it consistent through all three of your rewatches i don't know that i've got like one scene in particular but one thing that i love in the ot and it holds true to a new hope and it held through with every single one of my watches is i love the scenes where we just kind of slow down the the scenes in between the big set pieces right uh when you're going from tatooine to alderaan on the millennium falcon and we're we're, we're kind of slowed down and we're having some some character development with luke and ben and han and Chewie, you know that sort of thing I love just like when you slow down and we're sitting there watching the, the twin sons over Tatooine. That sort of stuff I love. I eat that shit up and, and 
that definitely held true. Also, anything with Carrie Fisher because she's just she's just so snappy. Yeah, I mean Hollywood royalty Carrie Fisher. <laughs> she was phenomenal. Which, and no, I agree with you as far as those large like set piece scenes. Like, or, sorry, those they're a lot of fun, but those slowed down. Like when Luke is doing his training with the training droid, you have Luke looking out over the twin suns, which is like a shot very reminiscent of Lawrence of Arabia. Also, another Lawrence of Arabia tie-in, Alec Guinness, who plays Ben. It was just those little slow moments are really great. And I would say that my favorite scene, though, in rewatching it is that TIE fighter scene when Han and Luke are in there trying to shoot him out, especially that scene is like, great kid, don't get cocky. Right, right. Um, so one thing that, that was really, really fun to learn about that scene is, uh, gosh, and I, I forget the name of the like special effects studio that Lucas created for the creation of Skywalker Ranch, uh, not Skywalker Ranch, a part of it. Industrial Light and Magic. Uh, Industrial Light and Magic. That's that's right. So when they were initially doing like the initial model building and kind of creating because they created uh, the technology that they created to get some of those special effects shots was like groundbreaking at the time. It was revolutionary stuff. But George Lucas, when he went off to actually direct and and film and cast and all those things, he kind of left ILM off to their own devices. And uh, it was it was really interesting to learn that like when George Lucas got back and checked up on ILM to see like what their progress was, uh, he was not happy with like what they had what they had accomplished while he was gone. Like the models were cool and stuff like that but like the way that they were doing shots i guess like there was nothing that was usable for the final film and george he actually cut together a bunch of world war ii dogfighting footage and gave that to ilm and was like basically like this this is what we're emulating this is what i want and so like every single one of those shots they showed like the world war ii footage that like directly coincides with how they like framed it and how they i i guess it wouldn't be animated it but how they they puppeted it and whatnot it was just really it was really really interesting to see like just how directly <laughs> like George Lucas was pulling from history with with a lot of those like dogfighting scenes that's really cool I wasn't aware yeah. of that yeah it was it was kind of a neat little it was a neat little bit but no that that's a that's a fantastic scene and and it's a scene that especially in the force awakens <laughs> I think they tried to kind of emulate with um Finn and Finn Ray. and Ray and yeah you know JJ Abrams he did the JJ Abrams thing but I don't think they hit that level of like camaraderie and connection that that Luke and Han hit. I, I feel like there they w- did it in a much more natural way in, in A New Hope. Yeah, and I also feel that the music in A New Hope for that scene was a lot better because it, it's not like a, it doesn't really use the traditional Star Wars score until closer to the end when they win it. Right. But it's like it's a slow, tense kind of like dun, 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 dun. And it just, it builds and adds to the scene and you're not distracted by anything else other than the actual dogfighting within that scene. You're not, there's no massive set around them. It's, it's just space. Right. And so in that sense, it feels a lot smaller scale because it's, hey, we're just fighting against these TIE fighters. We just need to survive. And so you're very singularly focused on them trying to stop these TIE fighters from shooting them down. It's really an iconic scene when you like think about it in the in the grand perspective. I think that like anyone who's seen Star Wars once, you mentioned that scene, they can picture it in their minds like perfectly, I think. But that's that's how honestly a lot of a lot of this film is. Like I said, take away the Star Wars. It is still just a really good movie, a really solid movie. Definitely. And I guess I'll follow up from favorite scene in your rewatches. Did you have a favorite character specifically to A New Hope? Specifically to A New Hope. 
honestly, I'm a sucker for Alec Guinness as, as Obi-Wan Kenobi. You can tell in the movie that he is like the most seasoned actor of the bunch and it, and it really shows. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, he's he is a he is real Hollywood big shot at this time. Like he had done Lawrence of Arabia. He had done Bridge on the River Kwai. And because he had that skill, like that star power, he was actually able to request payment on the back end of the movie based on like net gross. And so he's still making his family and his estate is still making gobs of money because that's how he negotiated in his contract. You've been in the game long enough. You knew how to play it. That's that's awesome. I didn't know that little bit. Uh, but even even like the interviews with the cast and crew from like back when they were actually filming it, they were like, man, even in the, the very beginning when we were out in... Uh, Let's see, back when they were out in Tunisia, like filming the Tatooine stuff, um, I guess it was just miserable conditions. The weather was horrible. Like you think Tunisia, you think like the deserts of Africa, you think just like hot and unbearable. But they also like during that time, they were undergoing like the worst rain and thunderstorms they'd had in like decades. <laughs> so like it was just a miserable time filming. And every single person that was interviewed about it was like, man, it was just chaos. But Alec Guinness, he was just he was the rock. He was the anchor that held it all together for us and and it kind of shows on set like not to knock mark hamill he's the one who stands out to me the most like i love mark hamill his acting throughout the entire ot i would say is like the roughest of all the the main cast right i would agree with that it's it feels like somebody's like trying to find their way and find their their tone and their mood for the scenes, but he was still serviceable. Yeah, he, he definitely, he gets the job done and, and it never, it never like was bad enough to the point where it takes me out of it. But like, man, Alec Guinness is, is Obi-Wan. He just, he just absolutely kills it. He plays the, the wise sage, the old wizard, just so incredibly well. Yeah, definitely. He's, he's hands down my favorite. I'm going to flip that question back to you. Who is your favorite character coming out? Just like on a new hope, not, not your favorite star Wars character, not your favorite character as a whole. Just who, who was your rock in this? Uh, this film. I'm going to go ahead and just go with the king of charm and cool and Han Solo and A New Hope is just that. He is uh, so I, good. I remember reading a little bit about how a lot of his influence was from the uh, lead character from Casablanca. And so if you want to pull from somebody cool to create another cool character that completely fits and That's how you Han it. nails it. So going off of that, uh, so originally, uh, I don't know if you knew this, this was just another little tidbit in, in that documentary that I watched. You know, originally Harrison Ford was not going to be allowed to audition for the part. I did not. What was the reason? So he had been in, and let me pull, I should know this off the top of my head, American Graffiti, right? Lucas's first like big big film he had his role in american graffiti right and uh because of his role in american graffiti lucas brought him in to feed lines to the presumptive actors who were auditioning for the role but he just killed it so much while he was feeding the lines that they were like actually we're just gonna have you play han solo he originally was not allowed to audition for the part of han solo wow and do you know how him and george lucas originally hooked up even before american graffiti how george lucas discovered him no i have no idea so before this, George, uh, Harrison Ford was actually a carpenter. And so what he got known for in Hollywood was he could help create little hidden pockets within like hot tubs and stuff like that where Hollywood big shots could hide their drugs. And so he had done that. And that's originally how George Lucas found him. <laughs> Possibly no specifics on it, but possibly because for George Lucas's hot tub, Harrison Ford created a little spot for him to put his cocaine or his marijuana. I love that. That is the most Harrison Ford thing I've ever heard in my life. 
<laughs> Honestly, throughout the entire OT, I think that Harrison Ford is he is the actor, the most iconic of the three for sure. Yeah, it's also he is just he had the most storied career following the original trilogy. Mark Hamill in between the first and second movie, he had that car accident that ruined his face, so he was never going to be another pity boy, like a pretty boy. Carrie Fisher wanted to get into script writing and more production-based work. So we've kind of covered our favorite scenes and our favorite characters. Is there anything else that when you were rewatching the movie, it was like, I really want to ask you about this. Like, I, I want to get your take on this scene or this overarching concept in the movie. Shoot, go for it. Yeah, so this is going to kind of branch out to uh, like the rest of Star Wars, right? Um, but Lucas, when he talks about Star Wars in relation to A New Hope and the OT specifically, he, he draws a lot from myth and legend. Like there's a lot of influences from like the Odyssey, from King Arthur, that sort of stuff. And his idea of the force it draws on a lot of like religion, especially like Eastern religions. And that kind of evolves by the time we get to the prequels to almost like a scientific thing, right? We, we go from the force as this binding concept to <laughs> something that's in our blood, right? Um, yeah. How many midichlorians you got? Exactly. What What's what's your take on that? Do you feel like George Lucas had a change of heart going from one to the other? Or do you think like that's, that's a transition that's always kind of broken my brain because George Lucas, he loves control of his franchise and he doesn't like meddling that's the whole reason he tried to stay independent for so long and successfully stayed independent um well i guess i should say instead of trying to stay independent bought to stay independent but yet there he goes kind of changing almost core concepts of his original trilogy as well as like i mean we could we could dive into like the actual changes that he made to the individual films like afterwards years and years later i don't know what what are your thoughts on the the concept of the force and how it kind of evolves from the ot to uh, the prequel trilogy and the sequel trilogy. I think he just was really focused on fleshing out the world building a lot more. When I watch a lot of George Lucas's movies, even outside of Star Wars, he is at his best when he is building a world and coding down core concepts. When he starts to kind of lack is when he starts trying to get into the nitty gritty of it. So he's like a great person to kind of create a world that you want to picture and see and understand the different factions. And that all went really well. And so when it comes to the force, he was good at pulling that together. But initially he was creating an entire world so he didn't spend as much time getting into the minutia of it and so when he was able to go back and when he was able to go to the prequel trilogy he started wanting to flesh out that even more he wanted everything to have its place and everything to be explained as thoroughly as possible and that might have also been influenced by the fan response where the fans were starting to try and create all these different ideas and all these different explanations for stuff that lucas hadn't and so maybe that desire for control also irked him where he's like oh i want to have full control over my world so he started putting in a lot more explanation because he didn't like how the fandom was starting to try and take control and say this is why this is and this is why this is right and, and i can see that and I think that there's nobody who would disagree with the idea that like George Lucas is at his best when he's doing the broad strokes, right? And you may have said this, but like he kind of starts to stumble once he once he starts to get into the little details, right? Definitely. But and it, that's also clear in um remember reading in his first cut for Star Wars, it was apparently a poorly edited film and it wasn't until his wife came in and started doing a lot of editing that they cut a lot of the uh, dead weight and they started restructuring it editing it making making it a lot faster and so even back at a new hope his wife as an editor came in and helped save the film and and that was that was something that uh the documentary that i watched talked about in fact they, they kind of dropped i 
can't remember exact lines or anything, but they, they kind of, when they hit that point, we're touching on it. They showed some of the lines that like got cut where it's just like, man, George Lucas actually wrote that as a line that a character was supposed to say. And uh, Carrie Fisher, she kind of summed it up best where she was like, and I'm just, I'm paraphrasing here, but a lot of the script is stuff that you would read, but you would never say in real life, you know, (laughs) it's something that you might see in a book and, uh, you know, think that's witty or clever or whatever, but you, you would never actually say that in real life. Nobody talks like that. And that, that kind of seems to be one of George Lucas's, uh, his faults a little bit. But yeah, it just kind of threw me off that one of like George's key concepts for the entire series, uh, the force, it's so central to so central and integral to the entire franchise. It just seemed a bit strange to me that like when you hear him talk about it back in the day, it's this mystical, mysterious thing. Nebulous concept. And then, you know, the prequels come around and he's like, I'm going to science the shit out of this. Let's go. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, that was just something that kind of stood out to me. I don't and one other thing you did talk about as far as inspirations, where you talked about pulling from myth and from legend. I also, in my preview for this, I was doing some reading and apparently this was originally going to be a Flash Gordon movie. Except George Lucas couldn't get the rights to Flash Gordon, and so it morphed into Star Wars. <laughs> we would not have had Star Wars if he had been able to get the rights to make his Flash Gordon movie. If that were to happen, just think about how much different the world would be right now. Yeah, I mean, how different would the Disney be as much be? of a monolith as they are? Uh, they'd still probably be. A, well, maybe, maybe not. Well, let's see. Pixar's not Disney, are they? Yes, they are. Pixar's Disney. I was going to say, because uh, that started at uh, Skywalker Ranch, Pixar. So I mean, they might have like, uh, I think Skywalker Ranch and ILM are a bit mercenary because I know that they also did stuff with like Steven Spielberg for Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah. So I think they're a bit more mercenary in that they were so good that they were being thrown out and used by all of Hollywood. Right, right. But yeah, so I thought that was crazy that like Flash Gordon <laughs> was... Luke Skywalker. Well, throughout throughout this documentary, pretty much every single time he like in the early stages where he was like asking like where his inspiration was, what he was trying to accomplish, like when he was pitching it to studios and stuff, he his pitch was more or less like I want a serial drama like Flash Gordon. Let's go. And it's like, man, George Lucas <laughs> really likes Flash Gordon like a lot. <laughs> Which, you know, it's it's crazy that cuz cuz man, I've tried to watch Flash Gordon. I've just never been able to stomach it. It might just be to me it hasn't aged particularly well. Maybe if I grew up at the time, I would have been really You talking about it. the 70s one, the uh-huh. 30s one? Uh, I'm assuming that George Lucas was talking about the 70s one, but he could have been talking about the 30s one. I think he was talking about the 30s one when he was talking about his inspiration. I watched the 70s one just to kind of see the parallels, but there's apparently a sequel to the 36th Flash Gordon that has kind of the same character build of like the princess, the hairy animal sidekick, (laughs) the swarmy rogue, your everyman, the villain. And so that was kind of, I can't remember i think they said that was like a 50s flash gordon sequel that they pulled that from but yeah, yeah it's the sequel flash gordon conquers the universe flash gordon conquers the universe i'm i haven't i don't think that's one i've i've seen like as i have 1940 black and white okay yeah uh, i'm thinking i definitely have watched the 70s ones if i've if i've watched them because i do not remember it being black and white but that could just be faulty memory on my part but yeah, so Flash Gordon. And then as well, uh, when you talk about Eastern inspirations, another thing that a lot of the plot of the film also comes from a famous Eastern film from director Akira Kurosawa, and that's the film Hidden Fortress. And in Hidden Fortress, 
you're looking at a general and a princess are behind enemy lines and they're trying to fight their way to safety with the help of two bumbling peasants. And that's where they got the inspiration for C-3PO and R2-D2. And that's also where they got the idea to have them kind of be the comic relief characters. Right. In the, and of, of course, he, that's not the only uh, Akira Kurosawa that he borrowed from. Hiding under the floor is a thing from this movie Sanjuro that he did. The fight in the cantina is also straight out of the movie Yojimbo. And it's a lot that he pulled from Akira Kurosawa, which I guess is also why some people refer to Star Wars as a kind of space Western in this first film, because Westerns were also influenced by Akira Kurosawa's films. So they're all just kind of drawn from that same pot, more or less, right? Yes. Which I haven't, I haven't seen any of those films. I know I was going to watch, I was going to watch one of them, but I just, I just never got around to it. Um, and maybe I should have, so I could be a little more helpful in this conversation right now, but yeah. Oh no, it's completely fine. But yeah, Akira Kurosawa is an incredibly influential and it's you can see how it's influenced George Lucas and really all of Hollywood at that time. Like it would be difficult to point to any one director who didn't pull from it. But it's cool to see the little things that got fed into Star Wars, especially A New Hope when he was kind of crafting something. It goes back to what you were saying earlier with those World War II dogfights that he wanted to mimic. And so he's got these ideas in his head for the broad strokes. But when it came down to the details, he looked for strong inspirations to mimic. What What's the saying? Like the greatest, the greatest, oh my goodness. Words. Greatest form of flattery is mimicry. Uh, that works too. I was going to say the greatest art, the greatest artist steal, man. I'm starting to feel that rum a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, so I'm going to pull us back a little bit and we're just going to go through a little bit of George Lucas history and kind of how we went from George Lucas, the university of Southern California film school student to George Lucas, possibly one of the like most well-known individuals in, in the world, I'd say. I think you could go to just about any country, say George Lucas, and people would know that that's the guy who made Star Wars, right? But uh, so, like I just said, Lucas, he attended the film school at uh, the University of Southern California. And while he was there, a lot of his professors, like early on, they could tell that this guy, he thought outside the box and he was he was kind of appro- approaching the, the industry and the art from a, a, a fresh perspective, right? The documentary, it talked a lot about how like a lot of the movies at the time were very like, doom and gloom they were all shot like very much by the books at the time like there was a formula to making movies back in in the late 60s early 70s and uh george lucas just kind of threw that that rule book out the window and you know wanted to innovate and create and kind of make his mark on the industry and he did so with his first student film which was this film called thx 1138 i don't know if you have heard of that at all chris uh, no, I have not. Please tell me more. So I'm not going to ruin it for you. I'm not going to ruin it for anybody. If you want to go watch it, you can find it online. It's about 20 minutes long. And it's really interesting because you can see the threads of Star Wars in THX 1138, right? After he did his student film and after he uh, left the university, uh, he joined American Zoetrope with Francis Coppola. Hollywood big shot. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, he tried to make a theatrical version of THX 1138. And it was actually Warner Brothers who who was like funding the movie and was like the, the studio muscle behind it, right? And when they saw the, the finished product, like the initial cut, they immediately demanded all of their money back. It was something like $300,000 at the time. And, uh, 
it basically bankrupt American Zoetrope. Like George Lucas <laughs> kind of single-handedly killed his uh, joint venture with Francis Coppola. Uh, somehow oh, they wow. remained friends. But uh, yeah, it was it was a giant disaster. I don't know if you can find that out in the wild. I kind I'm of looking doubt up it. right now and I can see American Zoetrope, Zoetrope or however you pronounce it, is still going. Are like, they it's still the going? Coppola's, it's the Coppola's, like uh, Lost, Lost in Translation, Creepers Creepers, on the, the movie that just came out this year, On the Rocks, that is getting some Oscar buzz. That's also American Zoetrope. Okay, so they they managed to recover the documentary. Made it sound like that was like game over. Maybe it just maybe it, it was just game really over set for George back. Lucas. <laughs> it was game over for George Lucas in it because I don't see any of his movies after American Graffiti right. under that production company. <laughs> after that kind of disaster, uh, he went and formed uh, Lucasfilm Limited, and uh, he did American Graffiti, like you just mentioned. And uh, I don't know if you've heard about this, but he kind of did. American Graffiti on like a bet. What was the bet? <laughs> so it was literally just Francis Coppola came up to him and was like, after, after THX 1138, like it was kind of a wild, a wild concept, you know, <laughs> it, had, it, had financial, it was a financial disaster as far as like how it impacted American Zoetrope. <laughs> and uh, Francis Coppola just came up to George Lucas and was like, hey man, I bet you can't do just like a lighthearted comedy. I bet, I bet you can't do it. And George Lucas, he was like, I bet I can. And that's that's how American Graffiti came to be. And I guess uh, George Lucas used to be a big, like, and who knows, he probably still is. All the guys with money are. But he was he was big into cars and whatnot when he was in high school and stuff. And so a lot of a lot of the inspiration from American Graffiti is straight out of, like, George Lucas's his, uh, younger years. But uh, American Graffiti, turns out, was a huge success. And uh, after that, it kind of gained him, it kind of gained Lucas a little bit of credibility back with some of the big studios, right? So all of a sudden, studios were willing to invest in him again after uh, the disaster that was THX 1138. And it was uh, was after he made American Graffiti that he wanted to kind of go back to his his little bit more wild personal style. And uh, like we talked about a little bit earlier, he wanted to create a Flash Gordon-esque space opera. Opera, right like that was his his grand vision that was his passion project at the time he really wanted to bring that to light it was shortly after american graffiti that he really like dove head on into star wars right and i don't know if you know this this is one of those like fun facts that like most people who know anything about star wars do know uh which is that like when he initially started throwing together his idea of star wars right he he wrote up his like 14 page pitch script that he was tossing around at different studios right and uh first he went to universal and they were like no thank you (laughs) so then he went to united artists and they also said no thank you and uh finally he made his way to 20th century fox who had recently changed I don't have his title, but uh, the head of 20th Century Fox, Alan Ladd Jr. He was a kind of like the fresh boss at 20th Century Fox trying to like change up a, a stagnant studio. And uh, he recognized that George Lucas had a lot of raw talent. And even though he like didn't necessarily agree with what Star Wars was, he had seen uh, what he had done with American Graffiti. He talked to some of the the people who'd worked with George Lucas, some of his professors, and he really believed that George Lucas was, was an individual that was going to just transform the industry, right? And so 20th Century Fox signed off on this crazy project called Star Wars when Universal had passed it down, when United Artists had passed it down. And uh, the funny thing is, even George knows that like 
Alan didn't agree to bring George on because he thought Star Wars was going to be a success. Uh, to quote George Lucas, 20th Century Fox invested in me, not my movie, <laughs> which, <laughs> which it's kind of a crazy thing where at this point, his only like big commercial success, and granted, it was a huge success for the time. It like blew away all expectations as far as like box office earnings and, and whatnot, was American Graffiti. He's got this one project under his belt, and somehow that secured him this position with 20th Century Fox where they were going to let him make this passion project of his, even though they weren't convinced it was going to be a commercial success just because they wanted to have George Lucas as like a creator and an ally with them, which is kind of cool. Jesus, to date, A New Hope has made $775 million just in the box office. That is absolutely insane. And granted, it's been through the box office a couple times. <laughs> but oh, yeah, it's, it's been in, it's been released six times domestically and five times internationally. So it's coming from that. But just imagine like having such a cash cow you can keep throwing out and it keeps making money every time. $775 million before you even get to TV licensing rights. And well, I guess Lucas got all of the, what was it? The, the merchandising, merchandising rights. rights. Which I guess George Lucas was actually kind of a pioneer in that in that respect when, um, when he approached 20th Century Fox. Because again, George Lucas, one thing that he really wanted to do was be independent, right? And he was trying to secure this like future of his where he could be an independent creator. And so when he was signing his contract with 20th Century Fox, he was like, all right, you guys can take all the money from the box office. I mean, I'm, I'm sure not all the money, but basically he was like, all right, you guys can have all this money and this money. I want the licensing rights to to, to merchandising. I want to be like the sole proprietor of, of the money that we make from merchandising. And at the time, I guess that wasn't really a thing and they were like yeah sure whatever george you can you, you can have that that's what you want just kind of like blown away by the fact that that was that was like what he wanted i mean you could argue that <laughs> some of the decisions made especially once you get towards like uh return of the jedi some of the choices in that movie could questionably be considered tied to more merchandising opportunities like the Ewoks uh -huh, rather than like an actual like need to be in the plot in the way that they are you know it's one of those things where like oh George definitely threw those in there to sell some toys you know and, and you can even see that in the movies these days as well I mean I think Boba Fett as a character was that right like even as early as uh the horrid empire uh well i was gonna say the christmas special but uh empire oh works god <laughs> like, george lucas is on record saying he wants to destroy every copy existing of that star wars <laughs> christmas special <laughs> but uh, i mean i'll i'll take it because out of that christmas special we found out that chewbacca has a family which is canon even today the story's yeah. changed a little bit but chewbacca has a goddamn family and then also uh boba fett we got boba fett and the mandalorians out of that so like that's pretty cool i guess <laughs> <laughs> but uh my notes man i didn't realize how drunk i was when i wrote these notes i'm all over oh, the place yeah. so amongst like my like going through like the history this is smack dab in between the inspiration with the odyssey and beowulf and some stuff like that and then the movie getting passed on by uh different studios guess the three word sentence that's smack dab between those two paragraphs leia looks hot originally luke starkiller because uh, i guess originally luke skywalker was going to be named luke starkiller which you know yeah, we, we get the fun tie-in with uh gosh what game is that that is uh starkiller 
Force Unleashed. Force Unleashed, that's right. And th- there's a couple things like that that are kind of cool where like one of the original sketches, and I want to say it was for Chewbacca, the race called Lasat, L-A-S-A-T. That is like one of the original designs for Chewbacca was. And then later in Rebels, they ended up making it its own. You know, they ended up making a character based on some of those original sketches. And now we have a race and it just kind of ties in. There's a bunch of stuff like that where little throwaway things from the original like drafting stages of Star Wars gets brought in and in folded into the canon in different ways. Um, I guess one of the original drafts for Star Wars involved the now super famous Kyber crystal, right? Like if you're uh, familiar with any of the expanded universe stuff, you know, it's, it's heavily mentioned in Rogue One, you know, the Kyber crystals are what power the, the Death Star. They're the crystals that power the Jedi lightsabers in the current yeah. canon. Originally, like the original draft, well, one of the original drafts for Star Wars involved the force being centered around this crystal called the Kyber crystal. And that's where we like get that original concept. But George, he didn't want the force to be centered on like this tangible thing. And so he, he kind of scrapped that idea. And instead, uh, you know, he wanted it to be this kind of nebulous flowing uh, mystical thing instead of it being like whoever holds the kyber crystal holds the power. That was one of the initial concepts that ended up getting okay. shot down. But it's just crazy to see all these little things that that didn't make the cut get folded into the canon later in these kind of interesting ways. And I'm, I'm sure as we go throughout uh, our, our journey on this podcast and as we kind of refine our podcast, we're going to see more and more of this stuff where where concepts from the old canon get folded into the new canon. Uh Big reason that we wanted to start with a new hope exactly where some of those original ideas were all right so we've talked about kind of the inspirations behind the film uh, we've talked a little bit behind the scenes we've, we've gone through some of our our favorite characters and scenes but i guess now we should just kind of go through the movie beat by beat well, well we're not gonna spend a whole lot of time on this but anybody who's listening to this podcast you've probably watched the movie 50 times you you know the movie as well as we do so i, I don't think we really need to dwell on that but i, I feel like we should we should at least go through it a little bit here this movie it really follows like the traditional like hero's journey and it's also like a coming of age story too it's kind of the the two-in-one uh where you've got this kid who you know gets pulled into a cause greater than himself maybe reluctantly he rises to meet the challenge and like evolves as a character because of it right and really it all it all starts for us with uh the Corellian corvette being chased by the imperial star destroyer right like that's the iconic opening scene of you know it pans down to space the corvette goes flying by and then this massive star destroyer eats up the frame and there you can't we... forget the title crawl now oh my gosh i forgot the title crawl chris title crawl me Dun, 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 dun. As, the, <laughs> as the sort of plot starts rolling up on the screen, that's also classic, iconic Star Wars. And so you have that, then you jump to your Karelian Corvette, and we get our introduction of Darth Vader. One thing that's fantastic about Vader as a character is he is just so ruthless and like fear-inspiring from the, the second he, he steps into frame. Vader is a, a monster. There's a reason that he uh, is such an iconic character you know, throughout the world. So, yeah, you have the Krillin Corvette, you have Leia giving the help me Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope, to R2-D2, and R2 and C-3PO blast down onto Tatooine, and we are introduced to our main protagonist, Luke Skywalker. We have the classic hero's journey. He's like, oh, he's a small town guy. He has nothing to do yet, but he's got aspirations of wanting to do something big with his life. And then when he gets these droids, he's presented with that opportunity. And that's when he meets the mentor as character in Ben Kenobi. 
which it's it's really funny because you start off the movie with Luke, you know, doing everything that he can to weasel his way out of staying on another season with with Uncle Owen. <laughs> but then the second he's given this opportunity to leave Tatooine for for this great adventure with Obi-Wan and, and these these droids that just fell into his lap, he, he initially rejects that, which I think is kind of a, a fitting part of the hero's journey, right? Where, where at first they kind of refuse the call and then his hand kind of gets forced when he finds out that uh, the Empire tracked the droids back to his place and, and killed his Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru, right? And from that point, uh, he's he's all in on this journey, right? And so that's when they decide to go in and you have your first example of the Force from Ben Kenobi when he does the Jedi mind trick on the stormtroopers. And I really like that they don't try and explain it right then. You just watch it, you understand what happens and you go forward. There's no needless exposition there. And it would have been so easy for them to, in this movie about space wizards, have the first example of the force being used be some ridiculous over-the-top thing. But but we never get that, right? The entire movie, I think the most we get is, I would say, Vader choking an Imperial officer a little bit. But that's like the most we see of this like space wizard magical power in the entire movie, which which I think is, I think it's a really smart, cool way to go about that. And that brings us to the cantina scene where we meet our charming rogue, Han Solo, along with his furry companion, (laughs) Peter Mayhew. Oh, man. The sad thing is even so many Star Wars fans don't know who Peter Mayhew is. (laughs) But, you know, it's 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 hard with those characters that you, you know, you don't put a face to. Right. Exactly. And if you like grew up with it as a kid, you just know him as Chewbacca. But uh, so in the cantina, we have an encounter with a, our first encounter with a bunch of different like alien species, right? Before we got the sand people and we got the Jawas. But in the cantina, we, we really see this like all these species from this larger universe. And it's just kind of a good like it's a good little world building bit where it's like, all right, this this universe that we're in is huge and wild and full of amazing creatures. And uh, also, you know, we, we find out that not everything is on the up and up. You know, some of our characters might be intermingling with the shadier side of this universe. Definitely. And I guess this is, uh, we have the uh, changes that Lucas made in the series, starting mainly right here. Yeah, so anybody who's a big fan of the franchise it knows the controversial like Han shot first uh, edit, right? So in the original cut of the movie, Han Solo shoots first when he has his encounter with Greedo, right? Basically, it, it goes to show that like Han Solo is a badass who he doesn't take shit. Lucas, in later revisions of the film, he edited it in this really janky way to make Han Han's head like move out of the way and like have Greedo shoot first to kind of I I think PG up Han Solo's character a little bit and that was a very controversial change for a lot of fans but uh you know that's that's a debate and an argument and a a topic that's been beaten to death within the Star Wars community what's what's a little bit newer is Disney actually made a change when they uploaded their version to Disney Plus in this scene and that is right before Greedo shoots they added him saying the line McClunky which uh, I forget exactly what it translates to. It's it's supposed to be like Huttese for like your time has come or now you're going to die or something along those lines. But like on top of the, the edit that Lucas made to kind of give Han a little bit more justification for shooting Greedo, it, it just it cracks me up that Disney felt the need to like really spell it out for people to be like, oh man, he had to shoot because otherwise he was going to die. It's just one of those changes I don't understand. It's super bizarre. When I was watching it on uh, Disney Plus the other day for the first time, 
time. And that scene came up. It threw me for such a loop because I've got this entire movie basically like cemented in my brain. I could go through line by line more or less. And so when this scene that that didn't belong popped up, it, it, it threw me for a loop. I don't know if you noticed that or if you even watched it on Disney Plus, but it threw me for a loop. Yeah. Also, just the line itself, my clunky. <laughs> yeah, like it's almost a clunky line, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it it was weird. It's it's yeah. And so directly following this, they're trying to make the deal. You have the initial screw up from Han Solo that there have been a number of different retcons where he says he made the Kessel Run and so many parsecs, <laughs> and somebody had to tell him that like parsecs are a measure of distance, and so. Fans have made so many different like excuses for like, oh, he went in really close to a black hole, so he was able to cut the distance of the Kessel Run, or <laughs> Han was just testing them, seeing if they were smarter, if they were idiots, and he could trick them. And then, you know, with the Solo movie, <laughs> Disney and Lucasfilm, they came in and they made us understand that, yes, indeed, it is distance. It's weird, those little things that <laughs> that uh, they kind of wrote themselves into in this movie and in some of the, the later movies that they double down on and really, <laughs> really, <laughs> you know, but it, it works. That's like the smallest nitpick you could make, and they made it work in Solo. So like, you know, whatever, it's it's fine. Nobody's too hung up on that. Uh, no. And then we have our next, uh, I wouldn't call this as a major of a Lucas change, but I guess another notable one when we meet Jabba. So when we meet Jabba, if you have seen like the original cuts of the movie, Jabba was originally just this big old disgusting human. And in later revisions, they went back and they edited it to uh, be, you know, the giant slimy CG slug that we all know and love. In fact, it's gotten a couple updates. There's a couple different versions of uh, Jabba in A New Hope, which it makes sense canonically because, you know, when Return of the Jedi came out, Jabba was that giant slug thing, right? So it, it makes sense to retroactively go and fix that for like continuity's sake. But also I think it was Lucas's original vision and uh, budget or time didn't allow them to have this giant slug thing in the first one for whatever reason. Or, or just later when they wrote Return of the Jedi, he decided he should be this giant alien slug thing either way i think it's fine the thing that's kind of weird about it is they had a visual gag where han solo walks behind and like steps on his tail and it, it, it kind of throws the whole feel of jabba off a little bit because in every other instance where we meet jabba the hutt he's this ruthless crime boss right who would not take a slight like that but in in the edit of a new hope you know he's he's kind of getting literally stepped on by Han Solo and, and just like takes it in stride which is a little bit weird and I don't know why Lucas felt the need to like make that visual gag. I think that was just because the uh, blocking of Han in that scene would have made it impossible for like stepping behind Jabba while also being so close to him. Right. It's one of those things where I get why it was done and it makes sense why it was done and just tonally it feels off from the rest of the series and the, the way Jabba is portrayed right? Um, oh yeah definitely and in that same scene, they also retroactively uh, edited in Boba Fett into that scene as well. So instead of being the Christmas special or uh, Empire, you know, being Boba's first appearance, we actually now retroactively have him in A New Hope, which I actually, I don't mind that much. A lot of people take issue with Boba being there, but I really don't. I think it makes perfect sense for Jabba to be surrounded by kind of the, the scum of the galaxy, you know? <laughs> yeah, it makes complete sense. So, but yeah, after that, one of the guys at the bar, I believe, 
leave rats out luke and ben so they they get chased by the stormtroopers and they they have to blast their way out of moss eisley on the falcon they evade a couple uh star destroyers up in space they make the jump to light speed and uh that's kind of the end of the first act really i think and from there yeah. we we go into some great exposition and, and character building at the, the beginning of the second act chris if you want to take us away yeah so like basically right there at the beginning of the second act you have han sort of being the foil to luke learning about the force and han just being like oh never seen anything like that in the galaxy and ben is just telling him about it and he has him training with the uh remote and that brings us up to going to try and find princess leia and them going on to the death star which directly before that you have the classic line that's no moon that's That's a space space station." station And, you know, just to reiterate, I'm not going to take very much time, but just to reiterate during that training scene when Han is like basically calling BS on the force and like the Jedi and and all that encompasses, you know, that aspect of Star Wars. Again, it would have been so easy to have some ridiculous over the top showing of the force, but they didn't do it. And I really like I, I cannot say enough good things about the way the force is handled in A New Hope. But back to the Death Star. <laughs> so they go on the Death Star, steal some Stormtrooper uniform and they get to Leia. Well, then one of my favorite lines in the film, it's like, no, we're okay. Everything's okay. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) It's just classic Han. Love it so much. Uh, And really, we get our our first real good meaty introduction to to Leia at this point. Yeah, you kind of got the idea that she was standing up to Vader in the first act when you first, like the very first scene in the Carillion Corvette. But she's also the same headstrong like let's just fucking do it guys and she <laughs> takes the blaster out of luke's hands to shoot their way into the uh, garbage chute right I-, I love that she even calls him out in this scene she's like yeah you didn't come in here with a plan what the hell <laughs> you blasted aren't your way you a little here. short for a stormtrooper <laughs> while we're on Leia, I-, I just realized we completely we completely skipped over uh alderaan getting blown up in the first place but that's kind of a oh you're right scene i did where, forget about that where she's basically forced to sell out the rebellion to save her people and you know in classic Leia fashion she she gives him outdated old information that's useless, uh, but it doesn't stop Tarkin from blowing up Alderaan, and you know that's how we ended up in this situation in the first place. But down in the garbage chute, we have the classic scene where you know the walls are compacting. I mean, we've all had that nightmare where the walls are literally closing in around us. We've also got like a weird bird squid thing in the in the waters. Yeah, in the that, trash that, that eye that just pops up like a periscope. Yep. Of course, Han he like tries to blast his way out, and they're like, "Idiot! It's magnetically sealed!" Like you almost kills him with ricochets like we already tried that which again that's just classic Han like what problem has Han ever faced that he doesn't immediately try and solve with a blaster (laughs) exactly (laughs) but you know uh, R2 is able to save them and they manage to get out of there safely in the meantime we've got Ben Kenobi disabling the tractor beam that pulled them into the Death Star so that they can make an escape or attempt to make an escape I would like to point out at no point anywhere in these massive cavernous areas are there railings in the Death Star. There are no railings in Star Wars, Chris. That's just uh that's just the thing. All right. I think the only time I've ever seen a railing in like a space station in Star Wars that I can think of is in the holiday Christmas special. <laughs> we don't talk about that. That doesn't exist, all right. <laughs> um, but uh yeah, even in like the command deck of the Star Destroyers, like there's like the command walkway and then the actual crew pits. There is no railing oh, yeah. around the crew pits. The, the officers are just walking, you know, they're walking at head level above the crew. They're walking the catwalk. Yep. You know, we, we see that time and time again in various sets of Star Wars where e- even in, I'm not going to spoil 
anything, but we, we even see, you know, this railless nonsense in some new episodes of The Mandalorian. So like, that's just kind of a, an iconic uh, It's the aesthetic, piece, and it yeah. also probably helps prevent the like the camera from being blocked to see things. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's practical reasons that went into it as well. Uh, Han and Chewie, they end up running off One Direction Leia and Luke, they go running off another. They, when they're getting chased, they, they try and block a door that's behind them, but uh, while they sealed off the stormtroopers behind them, they've now got this cavern that they, they can't cross because Luke just blasted the controls, right? And this scene, there's a, a fun little behind the scenes bit where uh, the stunt coordinator, when he was showing Mark Hamill how to like do this stunt, the harness actually broke a little bit and like <laughs> Mark Hamill was like, I'm not doing, I just, I saw that I'm, I'm not doing this. And uh, the stunt coordinator was like, what are you talking about? My, my pants just ripped is all. And he played it off like that his pants had ripped, not the harness breaking. And uh, by doing that, he was able to convince Mark Hamill to, to do this stunt. And they did it in one take. They only got one take because of, you know, <laughs> obvious reasons that scene exists the way it does because of one take and because of a broken harness. So, and that scene also has two other small, Small little interesting tidbits the first of which the stormtrooper trying to walk through the door as it's being opened and he box his head as he's walking through and then the other thing is this is the scene that skywalker ranch actually brought back the wilhelm scream that is now used ubiquitously throughout movies these days if you don't know it by that name just google wilhelm w-i-l-h-e-l-m scream that scream sound is used so much, so much in movies today and it started back with this scene i would say you would be hard pressed to find any sort of action movie that does not have at least one yeah and after a new hope because skywalker ranch just found that scream so funny and they started putting it in more <laughs> and it just became a thing uh, man, one of the many things we have to thank George Lucas for. <laughs> but, um, so after this, you know, the gang is able to lose the stormtroopers that are chasing them. They're going to make a go for the Falcon. And uh, what we end up seeing here is uh, a showdown between Ben Kenobi and, and his old apprentice, Darth Vader. One thing that's really interesting about this scene is I always thought that the reason this particular sword fight looks so bad compared to all the other instances of sword fights, even within the original trilogy, I, I thought that they just didn't have the budget for uh, like a stunt coordinator who like knew how to do sword fights and stuff, or that it was just a time crunch or a money crunch, that there was some like practical reason that uh, they weren't able to make the sword fight look a little more uh, realistic. A little more impactful uh but as it turns out they did they had a they had a stunt guy on on set who had choreographed some fights for him but the problem was the actual like lightsaber props that they were using were super super fragile and they kept breaking so they had to dumb that scene down and make that sword fight the way it is simply to keep the lightsabers from like snapping while they were recording which i thought that was a very interesting thing and it uh to me that's a lot better of a reason than like oh man we were short on time or oh man uh alec guinness just wasn't up to it which is complete nonsense because alec guinness <laughs> the dude used to fence he has like a fencing background but yeah that's just an interesting little tidbit that fight scene looks the way it does because the lightsabers kept snapping so the more you know and i completely agree with you that is my least favorite lightsaber fight scene of the entire 
Star Wars canon. They keep doing that, like just these little like wrist flicks at each other, and it looks so ridiculous. But there's... yeah, not only that, but like um, Alec Guinness is in Spin Kenobi. He's doing like full on like three sixty attacks, <laughs> and he's like Alec Guinness at this point. He's not a young spry man, and so it just looks it, really funny yeah. to see him doing like trying to do like a three sixty no scope lightsaber attack. Well, and it's so weird to do that, but then also like if you're gonna do that, put some meat behind it, you know, put some weight behind it, and instead we're getting these little like little slaps at each other so it's just the whole scene is just ridiculous but it's it's fun and it's you know it it doesn't take you out of it uh so much you're it's one of those things you're able to look past for like how good the rest of the movie is which you know this is the classic scene where we see darth vader cut down ben kenobi and there's the the classic line if you if you strike me down i shall become more powerful than you could ever imagine and we immediately see that come to fruition with the ghost of ben kenobi telling luke to run run. luke yeah run and I think that was also a good hint to the audience that, oh, there's not going to be a third act reveal. He's not going to come back in the end and so, like, oh, he was alive the whole time. He used to force trick to escape somewhere else. You hear his like ethereal voice telling Luke to run. So the audience isn't expecting like a twist comeback or anything like that. And I think we may have talked about this once upon a time, but we actually see Ben Kenobi, like his body doesn't fall to the floor. He disappears. He becomes one with the force as he's cut down. And I think that is something that we don't ever really see in the rest of Star Wars. Like, I don't think we ever see that again in, in terms of the actual movies until I mean, when until, Yoda dies, he disappears. You're right. He abs- Yoda absolutely does just disappear. I don't know why my brain was not working there. And then we yeah. see it in the sequel trilogy when, uh, you know, Luke just kind of like he goes, fades uh, away, you know? I don't feel so good, Mr. Uh, <laughs> Miss Kathleen Kennedy. Yeah, which we're not going to go into that. But other than those three instances, I don't think we ever really see that. And from like a story perspective, I don't think Lucas knew this going into it. But uh, it kind of plays really well when, when Vader like kind of steps on the cape and like swishes it with his foot a little bit of like, that's probably the first time Darth Vader or uh, Anakin Skywalker seen that as well. That's a that's a new thing to, to them. I like to play it off of my head that vader's kind of like what 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 the fuck just happened (laughs) what is this (laughs) you know you know when uh he was cutting apart younglings in the jedi temple they they didn't just vanish like that so uh, (laughs) yeah he had to look on his work and there's some really cool stuff in the like the clone wars and some of the expanded universe stuff that really goes to explain like how that secret of the force became unlocked and like the steps that were taken to make that moment in star wars happen you know retroactively they're coming up with this because you know new hope is obviously the first but it's it's just a really cool tidbit that ties into some eu stuff later but very cool this actually is our end of our second act ben kenobi is killed by darth vader they escape the death star and they go back to the rebel base on yavin and they get ready to attack the death star which is our third and final act this is our big big climax which one thing that always gets me about this scene and after watching um the the documentary that i watched preparing for this i finally got my answer as to why it happened or at least why i think it happened basically when they're in the briefing we have the gentleman who's giving the briefing i don't know his name i'm sure you know he's on wikipedia somewhere and i'm sure he's an important character but he he says the death star plans provided by princess leah and that always bothered me so much because carrie fisher is standing literally right next to him and it's like they, they didn't bother reshoot that huh but as it turns out at this point in filming they were really really on a time crunch and they like legitimately could not afford multiple takes like they were burning through scenes so uh i think that's probably why that slipped through but it's just one of those things where it's like it stands out to me so much every time i see it it's just a little thing but boy it gets me 
So they head off. You have Ben Kenobi talking to Luke again. He's got to jump into the trench and he's got a bullseye, an exhaust port, which is essentially the size of a womp rat. Yeah, man. And he used to bullseye those in his T-16 back home. They're not much bigger than two meters, so... And you also have Darth Vader coming in for the attack. Han, he has his the completion of his character arc because he decides to come back and do something selfless to help him out. And I feel like everybody here has seen like, the fight at the Death Star and that sort of tense, climactic moment. So I, there's not too many little things in that scene that I know to bring up. I don't know if you know any. So I think the big thing here is something that I've touched on multiple times throughout our discussion here. And again, we're just really quickly rapid firing because again, we've all seen it. You just watched it. It was probably your 50th time watching it. We don't need to go frame by frame and analyze this. But I, I love the fact that again, you know, where Luke, Luke's big moment with the force is he turns off the targeting computer and lets the force guide his hand as he makes that shot, right? And again, I think it's just so beautiful that this mystical energy that in the later films we see being used in such ridiculous and obscene ways, uh, you know, huge jumps and just crazy force powers and throwing shit back and forth at each other. In this film, it's just so subdued and so subtle in the way that it's used. And, and I, I think it's it's really beautiful because it shows like this development with uh, Luke as a character, like it perfectly coincides with the development of Luke as a character in his journey to become a Jedi. So I just think the force is handled so exceptionally well in A New Hope. And I, I cannot say enough good things about the way that it's handled. Great shot, kid. One in a million. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and that, that more or less brings us to the end. Chris, I know this is your big scene that you wanted to talk about. So I don't know if I would bring it up like that, but like <laughs> I just I feel like this is a very lesser known fact. It's the um in the awards ceremony scene when you have all of them going up to get their medals and everybody's cheering and Chewie doesn't get a medal, but he still is like <laughs> they actually took the set design, the blocking for all the extras and how it it was shot from an old Nazi film called Triumph of the Will. And if you go and look at some of the shots of that where they were doing the Nazi speeches and the way they would have their ceremonies and stuff like that, they look nearly the exact same. And that's because I think the director's name is like Riefenstahl and he is still taught in film schools today because like even though he was essentially a propagandist for the Nazis, his advances in cinematography and shot selection and stuff like that were so revolutionary that it couldn't be ignored. It, it's kind of similar to the D.W. Griffith issue. Right, right. And you don't even have to look very hard. If you just Google that title, the shot comes up and you, you see exactly like it's one to one. They copied that shot exactly more or less. And it's like Chris said, it's just an interesting little tidbit that that made it into Star Wars and is such an iconic scene in Star Wars, especially considering its background. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> that wraps up the uh, rapid fire walkthrough of A New Hope's plot in the three-act structure. And yeah, I guess, is there any final things that you want to say before we tell them what we're going to be doing in our next podcast? No, I think we more or less covered it all. I think I just want to say uh, thank you guys so much for sticking with us if you made it to the end here. Uh, this first episode, it's probably going to be a little bit rough. We intend to kind of smooth out our formula going forward. And, and I think we've already got some good ideas for how, how we're going to handle the structure of our next episode to really smooth things out a bit but we hope you had fun nonetheless we hope you enjoyed your rewatch of a new hope and uh chris why don't you tell the folks what we're going to be covering next time so for our next three podcasts we're going to be covering the three books of the original thrawn trilogy heir to the empire dark forest rising and the last command so we'll be doing a podcast on each one of those books I haven't read them before. Like I know of the name Thrawn and I know that a lot of people like him, but I don't know anything about the plot. 
I've read the the most recent Thrawn trilogy, and then Timothy's on. He's actually doing a new new Thrawn trilogy, which the first book just came out like a few months back, and I've read that. And I think once upon a time, like clear back in elementary school or uh, like junior high, I think I read Heir to the Empire, uh, but it's been long enough that I don't really recall much at all, and I definitely haven't read the rest of them. But like Thrawn is a character, you know, we've seen him in Rebels. We all know and love him from the video games that he's been in. Like Thrawn, everybody knows Thrawn. So uh, it's going to be real fun to dive into that. Uh, Chris, I don't know. Do we want to try and release those on like a weekly basis? Do we want to do every two weeks? How, how quickly did you want to burn through those? I think we can go bi-weekly. And okay. if we get something out faster, we'll get it to you guys faster. Otherwise, I feel it's just we don't want to rush it and then not have something interesting to talk about because we rushed it. Right, right. So if you want to follow along with us, like we say, pick up Heir to the Empire. I highly recommend you get it on uh, like Audible or something. The audiobooks in Star Wars are, a lot of them are just so incredibly well done. And I believe this is one of them done by like Mark Thompson and it gets like the full, at least if you get the anniversary, there's like an anniversary re-release of Heir to the Empire. And if you get that particular audiobook, I believe it gets like the full audio drama treatment. So highly recommend it if you go the audiobook route. I think Chris here, he just bought the entire trilogy like paperback on amazon and it yeah was, what, i got like, it on amazon uh, yeah it was like 25 dollars on amazon to get all three just because i read really quickly and that way i can knock it out like boom 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 when i get the time so however you choose to consume it heir to the empire is what we're going to be discussing next time uh in the meantime feel free to follow us on twitter at that star wars pod and uh we should be live on soundcloud spotify and itunes so we'll be on those three platforms moving forward so Chris, do you have anything else that you want to say before we sign off here? Thanks, guys. And this completes my very first ever podcast. (laughs) And we are so incredibly happy to have you, Chris. So thank you so much for joining me on this journey. All right, guys, we will catch you all in the next episode.